As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome into Allocation Disorder. I am Paul Tenorio, joined today by my friend and colleague Pablo Maurer. Sam School is somewhere on vacation. As you guys all know who listen to the show, he is in a hammock watching Allocation Disorder on YouTube right now for sure. Uh, Pablo, this is an upgrade over Sam School. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. In what ways is this an upgrade? You've replaced, uh, you've replaced a reporter who has some of the deepest knowledge of the intricacies and stupidities of MLS roster rules with somebody who does not fundamentally understand the game of soccer. I'm not really sure what's well, happened here. You know, that's fair, but I do think you you have a really good under, understanding of the intricate intricacies and stupidities of American soccer history, which is true. You know, just as important, if not more so, than uh, you know the MLS roster rules and regulations. Um, but yeah, I mean, we should probably start off by asking you to explain the discovery process and uh, your intimate understanding of of how that works. Um, uh, this is at least a, an aesthetic upgrade, I think, between you know from yeah. Sam. I'm not sure, you know. Well, I, I wanted to make sure I had a black tee on, but uh, unfortunately, it's not sleeveless as you prefer it. Um, <laughs> but you know, at least we're, we've got the same motif going. I, Pablo, I am in Wisconsin at a lake house. I have a very lake house vibe going on around me here. Um, but as you know, because I, I usually take part in staff calls when I'm up here from another room in this lake house that has uh, a different motif that you guys usually prefer when I'm here. I chose not to have that for allocation disorder. It is, it's, um, you know, it, we won't go into too much detail about what that room is like, but, you know, we would just, I just vaguely say cursed artwork. Yeah, you know, definitely just, cursed artwork. Just the sort of stuff you see, like, in your grandparents' house. Like, my mother has a collection of, like, uh, old porcelain dolls. <laughs> that every time I'm either, you know, very deep, you know, she grew up in Spain in the fifties. This is some deeply sort of like supernatural stuff. I'm sure anything bad that's happened in my life is because of either that or, or the rowdies doll or the rowdies doll, or now more recently, like the ghosts of wee Willie McLean, you know, um, yeah. I'm just collecting. Oh, oh, we're going to talk plenty about Wee Willie McLean in the second segment. Yeah. We will probably bring the Tampa Bay Rowdies doll up in the second segment as well. Uh, Pablo has a weird doll uh, that he bought on eBay. It's actually um, gone, Paul. I got rid of it. Well, 
understandably so. It's, yeah. it's a sad day that we can acknowledge that that doll no longer exists. It was hot to the room. touch. So I didn't, you know. <laughs> but before we go into all of that stuff, <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about soccer, Major League Soccer. We, we do occasionally discuss the sport on this show. Um, the summer window is opening in uh, a week. And there are four big name players coming into MLS. And I think it's kind of funny because a lot of the discussion around MLS of the last few years has been like, it's not a retirement league. We're all about signing young players. But for sure, the headlines this summer are about players who will probably create the buzz again that MLS is a retirement league. Giorgio Chiellini and Gareth Bale signing with LAFC. Hector Herrera signing with the Houston Dynamo. Um, he's being introduced on Friday when most of you will be listening to this show. Uh, and Insigne, of course, in Toronto. And I think, Pablo, that you are you and I are on the same vibe here. Uh, I don't mind these signings at all. I, I think uh, when you look for different reasons, when you look at LAFC, I think the way that they structured these signings, neither of those players, Chiellini or Bale, are on DP contracts. Um, Insigne... Uh, you know, kind of follows the TFC model and Hector Herrera in Houston. I've got a story coming out, kind of the behind the scenes of why that signing matters in Houston. But I wonder your opinion, retirement league, not a retirement league, like these signings, don't like them. What do you, which one do you like most? I, I guess we'll start just on the basics. What do you like or not like about this summer window so far? Well, so to start real quick with the uh, the retirement league thing, I, I actually was having drinks last night with Sebi Salazar. We both are sort of like laughing about this because, um, it's I it, like it's just a narrative created by like a certain subset of fans. It has no real impact on like the bottom line of the league or what the league actually is. And it's funny that like it's such a huge talking point when it legitimately doesn't matter. And like I, I also genuinely feel like like you said, I mean, if you're going to sign um, a player like Bale, although I think Bale still certainly has plenty of miles left in the tank or Achillini, like if you do, if you get them on a TAM deal, if they're not like some incredibly high paid asset, I mean, like it's a relatively low risk, you know, I mean, it's one worth taking. And I think throughout the history of the league too, it's like, you know, people talk about sort of like Pirlo, Gerard, you go back further, I don't know, Danielson, players like that. Those players are few and far between, man. It's like in the interim, you end up with guys like David Villa, with guys like Zlatan, with guys you know, you could go on and Rooney, you could go on and on and on sort of stuff. So in my opinion, man, there's always going to be a place in MLS for this type of player for the right sort of early, early to mid thirties um, player to come in here still has something to prove. Bale for sure still has something to prove, still has this year, especially a lot to play for, you know? Um, so no, I, I like the signings. Uh, the Insigne one is honestly the one that raises a little concern for me. I mean, just because the amount of money is so insane and like, because I've also, and this is probably not a popular viewpoint with a lot of MLS fans. I also think if you're going to spend $10 million on a player, it has to be someone who moves the needle at the gate, who moves the needle perception wise. And obviously Insigne is a big player globally, you know, is, you know, played extensively, obviously for the, you know, the national team, whatever else, but like, He's not a name player. I'm sorry. Like globally, he's not a name player. He's not a Rooney. He's not a Zlatan. He's not even, you know, if you sort of went to the second tier of MLS, you know, no, like notoriety in terms of DPs. So that one to me, like you said, though, is classic TFC. It's like they're just going to spend and you never know. They might end up or he might be like, it'd be weird to call him the next Javinko because obviously he already has an entire resume and, you know, but like 
he could be that kind of player for them. You know? Yeah. Well, I think that's the goal for them is what I like about Toronto is that they just don't care. Like they, they're like, we operate in our own model. We are going to, you know, double the highest salary ever paid in major league soccer. We are going, and we're going to do it because we had the best team in MLS when we followed our own model the first time they signed Michael Bradley, Josie Altador and Jovinko as DPs. Um, all three senior DPs, not the model that most MLS teams were trying to follow at that time, but they were one of the best teams of all time in MLS history. They won MLS Cups. They they went to a Champions League final. Um, they won Supporter Shields. They were fun to watch. And those crowds at BMO were awesome. And they're like, okay, let's do that again. And you know what? Toronto is a very European city. Jovinko did well here. Let's go back to the well. Let's go back to Italy and see what we can you know, see what we can do there. And Insigne is a player who can be a difference maker in this league. And, but yes, I mean, everyone's going to look at that signing and their first instinct is going to say, well, that's so much money. Like the only way that this works is if it is, you know, an MVP caliber performance every single year. And, well, and he, yeah, I mean, you'd think it would, it moves the goalposts too for like expectations oh. with other players when they come to the league, even some, I mean, I, I think it's, I think about Rooney, for example, and it's like borderline preposterous. DC United got this guy for like two and a half million dollars a year. I mean, I mean, like, I, I think we're getting to this weird point right now with MLS where it's like, at this point, I think we can start evaluating based on your ability to negotiate for these DP deals. Because yeah. you're talking about, you look at the, the the history, and it made sense. Like, I was in Orlando in 2015 when Kaká was signed, $7 million a year. And he was kind of, in my opinion, that last superstar that had to get paid as the highest paid player in MLS. And Zlatan as well, but like you said, Zlatan, is a t- a, he's a different beast. You know, he came on a million dollars, by the way, to start and then went to seven the second year. A million, so a really on dollars. average, he was like yeah. a $4 million player, right? Are you counting so, his rent and all the other stuff to yeah, no, I'm not counting. Or, yeah. No, I'm not <laughs> counting any of that stuff. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm counting what MLS counted, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, but... You know, you talk about what Rooney was making and you look at you look around the league, Gareth Bale coming on a TAM contract, um, you know, Shakiri coming on seven million dollars looks worse to me. For sure. But I sympathize with the fire because they they negotiated that contract like two weeks after Insigne's deal got announced where this guy's making like 15 million dollars a year. And then you go to Shakira, how are you going to be like, oh, how about two and a half mil? How does yeah. that sound? Like, no way. Every MLS team was going to have to negotiate off of that number. You know, and- you know, there's a whole collection of like uh, the sort of MLS owners that don't have any particular ambition who every time one of these deals happens, they're just like screaming the F word in their office and like screaming at their GM and, you know, like, exactly. Yeah, and do then really they, well then the they execute a trade yeah. to bring in, you know. Right. Diego Maybe. Rubio or whoever, you know, but <laughs> yeah. not, no disrespect. Of right. um, well, he just got astray. Uh, yeah, total, total astray. That happens too often on this show. And usually yeah, it's man. usually my fault. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, look, I, I want to move like to your point of, of kind of these players and what do they bring to the table besides the on field? You know, that brings me to Houston. They're bad. Houston has been bad for a long time. They've made the playoffs once in the last eight years. Like I didn't even realize how bad it was until I was writing this story. Um, you know, obviously this is a team that won back-to-back MLS Cups when they were in, first starting in Houston, and you know had great crowds. And so, what I like about that move with Herrera is 
to me, there's like a notice of intent there. And the intent is one, we're willing to sign DPs for more money than you've seen because Houston also ranked last in the league in spending, not counting expansion teams in the five-year period from 2017 to 2021. Um, so they're spending money right away. They're connecting to the Mexican market that they've never attempted to connect to before. Two Mexican-born players played for Houston Dynamo. Two. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that is crazy. You know, I don't. It's not a coincidence. This will be in the story. One of Pat Onstad's first flights after getting hired as GM was to Mexico to go into that market and to say, "Hey, we have more than a million Mexican and Mexican Americans in this market. You know, we need to find a connection to it." And Hector Herrera brings that. And so I don't know what Hector Herrera's salary is, but to me you know what you're getting with him. Like on the field, is he going to be Jovinko? Is he going to be even Zellerayan? No, he's not going to win games for you. He's not going to score goals and, and provide assists. But he he does add leadership into the into the, the locker room. And I think that it sends a signal to the market of this is who we're going to be. And this is the type of leader that we're going to bring in that's going to change the culture and so i do think that there's still room for that and that's not unique to mls like their leagues around the world you can go and sign 31 32 year old players that can be useful for your team and at the same time still sign younger players john thorrington talked about this with gareth bale they have an open dp spot they're probably going to use it on a young south american player as they typically have done that they can resell like signing veterans is does not mean you can't sign young players and signing young players doesn't mean you can't sign veterans like you should be doing both and i think that's kind of where we need to reset this narrative about retirement league like you can sign 32 33 year old european players stars who can help you and still be signing young players that you want to develop and resell you know like um, what i wonder with Houston, and it's what i and, and it's honestly me speculating but based on speculating but it's like informed by a few conversations i've had and it could it could be said honestly for like a third of mls teams it's like this is their first real big name signing in a while this is them spending money for the first time uh in a while May, like real money maybe ever and i sort of wonder you wonder um you know when houston signs an actor herrera i always wonder about the rest of the organization how like capable they are of marketing that player and sort of like maximizing the return on that investment. And it's one of those things I wonder with Houston. It's a team that's been by all accounts, let's be real, irrelevant in the grand scheme of things within the league. Um, they make a huge signing like this, but I don't know. Part of me just feels like barely heard about it. You know what I mean? And that's one of those things. If the, if the galaxy or if any other number of teams sign a player, it is like in your face for weeks, months, whatever, before they get here, when they get here. And the Edena thing is, honestly, it's been kind of a whisper. You know, it just makes me wonder about how sort of well-equipped their front office, everything else is to like maximize the return that I'm talking about off the field, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, and and I feel bad for them because they, they signed him at an awkward time where he's closing out his career with Atletico Madrid. He wanted to kind of respect that. That's a type of club with a lot of tradition, a lot of history. He didn't want to be disrespectful to the club. He's playing under a manager who would be quick to bench you if he perceived that in Diego Simeone, punch obviously. You in, punch you in the face or whatever. You know? <laughs> right. And so I think they were trying to be respectful to that side of things. And then in their mind, it's like, oh, okay, when we get close to the summer window, we can blow it out. Yeah. And, and you know, in the days leading up to them, you know, trying to blow this out, Gareth Bale signs in MLS. And it's like, <laughs> 
you know, yeah, everything yeah. else gets buried. But I do think that there is something to that. And I really liked what I, you know, I did an interview with Pat Onstad and Asher Mendelssohn, um, actually a while back for this story. And what they talked about was like, yeah, like it's not just the soccer part of it that needs to get reset within the club. Yep. And they looked at this signing uh, as similar to Michael Bradley to Toronto, as as a signing that could change everything, that changes the mindset of the employees that work in the organization, of the community around the organization, that sends a signal to other players that you're recruiting to bring into Houston. And so, yeah, I mean, it it's it's the type of signing that should change the way they operate and and maybe they maybe that's the first step is how do you market it how do you make sure people are aware that Hector Herrera is playing there how do you make sure that the market is aware that you know one of the most important players for the Mexican national team is playing there in the months ahead of a world cup um and they have the advantage of a November world cup to market off of right like you're going to be watching this guy play in Qatar um it'll be interesting to see I I like that idea though that you know, there are these types of players who can be transformative. And the other player yeah. they brought up, which I thought was really smart, is actually Alejandro Bedoya, who's not thought of on the same level as Michael Bradley nationally. But if you talk to people in Philadelphia, Jim Curtin will will tell you that Bedoya has been such a huge part of the winning formula there because he sets the tone in the locker room. Like he is kind of the messenger of this is who we are as the union and that allows Jim Curtin to kind of operate the way he wants to, playing young players over veterans at times and things like that. It's because he's got a guy in Bedoya who kind of keeps things in line in the locker room. And and I think Herrera can be that for Houston. You hope he is. Um, I mean, he could, that, he could be the first team. You know, a lot of – obviously, most teams have these sort of tentpole players that even after they retire, I mean, if the Galaxy, it's like Beckham, Zlatan, you know – a like you go way back, obviously DC United, it's like three or four of their original players are still literally like holding the roof up over the perception of the whole franchise less and less these days. But like, you know, um, Herrera could be the start of, of something like that of, you know, like could be a legacy, obviously could do have a tremendous impact immediately, but also could it be like kind of a legacy signing for the franchise down the road. So, yeah. I mean, you and I both have been around big name stars in our markets. Like I said, I, I was around Kaka, you with Rooney. And before we go to the next segment, I just want to, for you're me, on Breck Shea, you know, I mean, like Breck Shea too, yeah. Um, well, the for me, what stood out about Kaká was two things. One, um, I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, I understood that Kaká was like a megastar, but until I was traveling with that team, and you realize like how crazy people go for a star that big, and like the, he the, particularly, he is like Jesus Christ, basically to certain people. To certain yeah. people, he really is, and like they were selling out every away game, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people waiting at the locker room entrances when the bus pulled up and um, it was crazy people running onto the field to try to get close to him. That was like, I w it was just kind of um, a wake up call into kind of how big these guys are. But also there was a real impact within the team of these younger players who were like, Oh, this is like, they saw Kaka being the first player to show up at the training facility. And they were like, well, if Kaka is here early doing a weight room session, like I need to be doing that if I want to get yep. to where he was. And I imagine there were some similarities with Rooney. Rooney might not have been the first guy in the weight room. Yeah, I mean, they would show up to the bar and they'd be like, <laughs> Rooney beat me here. This is crazy. I need to start. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it, it, but it was like that. It, and it was it was uh, not just in training. It was about what he did on the field. I mean, it, like if you think about maybe his most iconic moment in MLS, which is the sort of track down – uh, who did he 
Who did he catch there? It was an Orlando City player, right? Yeah, it was. God, what's his name? I can't, like, I'm. If we remembered it, you'd be like, oh, that's the perfect player for that to happen to. (laughs) So look it up later. Um, You know, and then obviously, like, coming forward across to Lucha, all that sort of stuff, like, that was just like his ethos as a player. I always say this about, and this is another thing we come back to, you know, maybe bring it full circle, come out of the DP thing. Look, man, you don't become Wayne Rooney without having some like almost defect in your DNA that makes you unable to switch off. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like because many of these players moved to MLS, all of a sudden they're going to be like, Oh, I'm going to go to the beach and whatever else. Like they would not have arrived at that point in their career if they ever thought that way, you know? So, and yes, again, occasionally you get the, the, you know, you're going to get the player who just switches off, but like it's a rarity. And like with, with Rooney for sure, man, he was like, the kind of player DC hasn't had in their locker room in like a decade, you know? So it was a shame he left. I know he like had a positive impact on a ton of their Academy kids on like a ton of, even on their, you know, sort of like mid to late twenties, middling MLS player, just to be exposed to that and to see like what you have to do every day to, to excel. I mean, it was, it was hugely useful, you know? So yeah, we'll see. I mean, hopefully Herrera can be that guy in Houston and hopefully, you know, Insigne and Bale and others can be, those guys at their respective teams. We'll see what happens. Yeah, well, you heard it here. None of those guys will be failures as mid-season signings in MLS, <laughs> um, as predicted by... by the FC is going to get every penny they invested in Insignia back. That's right. Know, and more. Right. It'll be worth Completely. every single dime. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, when we come back from break, we're going to talk a little bit about somebody else who can't turn off their brain working in the weirdest possible ways. And we're really going to talk about how bad that can be for your health when a story lasts two years. We, Willie McLean. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll be back next segment to talk about this. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we're back, and we're here to talk about Pablo's journey. That's right. Allocation (laughs) disorder is turning into uh, lifetime movies about our colleagues. Pablo, I I really do, though, appreciate (laughs) what you – how you kind of blended this this uh, this personality of yours from like the the mechanic, former mechanic turned journalist, just happy to be here and be doing this as a living to like I, I get the inside look of the pain that goes into writing these long features. Anyone who's a writer knows it. The worst part of writing is sitting down to actually write. And yet Pablo manages to make this process at times last years. And, and 
<laughs> it's not like a compliment, man. I mean, like- it is. It is a compliment because you didn't like I, what I appreciate. If anyone has read recently on our website, um, there was a story that Pablo did with Matt Pence about Wee Willie McLean, who played for the U.S. in the 1930 and 34. No, just the 34 World Cup. He didn't make the 1930 team. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as they were kind of, they looked him up and it said on his Wikipedia, he disappeared and they went looking for him. And if you want to talk about dedication, it is deciding to go look for somebody who disappeared in like the forties and not giving up for years, finding little bits that keep the story going, finding family members who give you one more nugget that makes you chase another lead that takes you to, you know, psychiatric hospitals to cemeteries outside of Chicago (laughs) to all of these different places. And, you know, the whole way through, like, you're like, no idea what this project is going to end up looking like. Um, And yet you keep going. And I guess the only question there is to ask is like, why? I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, well, because it was, you know, I don't know. Like, honestly, with the Wee Willie thing, um, Paul, you know, those sort of like editors of the company who were sort of driving us to like, it, it almost became a running joke because it was like, uh, you know, why are you doing this? Like, we need to like, there, you need we need to peel back the layers and figure out like what is driving you in this obsessed way to follow the story. This is something that Matt and I were both asked, and for us, it was always so simple. It was just like, it's an interesting story, man, and like we're writers, and you get obsessed with stuff. I mean, I understand your point. Not everybody does, and like internally, this got so ridiculous that the Slack channel that was created between Mad and I, Brooks and Alex, our editors, was called Skull Quest. Because at some point, <laughs> I think maybe Brooks or Matt was like, this is just gonna end with you holding his skull, Pablo. And honestly, as we as I when I found his gravesite, I'm not saying I was, was gonna dig it up, but I realized not the irony and all this. I was like, I don't know. We don't really know if he was lobotomized or not. And <laughs> within his skull, you could probably <laughs> so but Pablo, yeah, I mean, you know how it is, right? It's like you. Um, I, I, let, let me get this out of the way. Like, this really only happens at the athletic. First of all, like you know, I am only empowered to do a story like that here. I just don't think it happens. Maybe it happens in Netflix or something like that. But I mean, the world of sports journalism. You know, if I work at you know wherever else, I'm not going to start beating up on competitors. But like. You know, it's one of those things where it's like after two weeks, like, for example, Paul, I think I think about it this way. Matt and I had established after a month that this guy had, yes, vaporized, but then had like changed his name and like remarried. That was where we were at. Right. And I think a lot of outlets would have been like, great, great story. Write it. You so, you solved a missing persons case. But like like you said, I mean, I think we were allowed the time to just keep pulling on threads and then it just became this absurd thing, you know, where, where it was, you know, turned into a years long process. There's obviously more to that story too, but like, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. We did it cause it was interesting. And, and honestly, because after a while you start feeling a moral obligation to the subject of a story and to their family to sort of see it through and reconstruct someone's life, you know? Um, but well, when the story but, finally but, ran, like before I clicked on the link, I went back you through feel our, the same way about like your Tam stories, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, I that's feel how allocation obligation to the major league soccer's headquarters to really do this justice, you know, a like, very similar origin story to allocation disorder. You know, we felt like this podcast had to be made. 
exactly. Like we yeah. had a duty to the league, to to the to the fans of the league, to really you know go we down were contractually every, obligated to the athletic <laughs> to make a podcast. Every dead end we could on MLS rules, we're gonna go down into that cul-de-sac and just do yeah. circles. Um, no, but I, I mean, I remember when the story published, I went through my phone. I didn't realize that you had embedded it in the story. It would have been a lot quicker to get to it. To see how long it had been since you sent me a video from the gravesite of Wee Willie. It was in the middle of the pandemic um, and it was like raining and you were like digging out this grave and you sent me the video. And like, it just, it <laughs> just. Typical coworker stuff. But know? yeah, yeah, exactly. My coworker but, at this soccer website sent me a video of him clearing a person's grave. Yeah. You know? Well, that's, that sums up my relationship with Pablo for all of you listening. And <laughs> in a way, no, but Pablo, like we joke about it, but you know, that thing that drove you to keep reporting the Wee Willie story, I imagine like that's kind of what led you to be what you are now as a soccer writer. Like you like to find the different, unique, usually American soccer histor- history stories. Like you don't, you don't love writing about, you know, you, you report on MLS and you, we, you know, wrote about Rooney or whatever thing that's happening. You're, you're helping us report on, but like when you get into a story, usually you're, you're trying to find some different path, whether it's going into George Best's history and, and again, not just writing about what he did in the NASL, but finding the bar that he bought, you know, in retirement and all those different things. Like, when did that happen? Like, at what point did the that switch flip? Where you, where you, was it one story that kind of was like, oh, this is this is what I love. This is where I want to go. Well, so it's funny you you sort of asked me that the other day um, when we were talking about what we might chat about, and I I, I actually thought to myself the origin of like that mentality is entirely selfish. So I'll give you an example, maybe like 10, 11, 12 years ago, I did a story. I did a lot of not non-soccer writing photography and whatever before this. And um, I, I was at a railroad museum in Baltimore uh, as a, uh, you know, just end the show. <laughs> no, so I was, you know, I, I like trains. So I was there and I, I was there with my partner at the time. And like, we're walking back behind the um, museum. And I saw this, this old Pennsylvania railroad electric locomotive. Um, GG one is like the model designation. And I looked at Claire and I said, I had that, like I had a toy, one of those when I was a kid. And I used to go to 30th street station in Philadelphia with my dad and we'd watch these trains, these like beautiful, beautiful things like designed by Raymond Lowy, who's this crazy industrial engineer designed like the Air Force One livery, the Lucky Strike cigarette package, the Coke, the new Coke bottle. I mean, um, the U.S. Postal Service, like all these iconic things. And so um, then I thought to myself, all right, well, you know, I don't know. Like I wrote down the little number on the front of the locomotive and I went home and it turned out that that locomotive had like became a runaway train in the fifties smashed through DC union station, fell through the floor. It was like a month long project to excavate it. It was just a random like train that was sitting behind a train shed, like not even on display. Right. And I wrote the story. I wrote the story because selfishly I just was, became really interested in it. And it, you know, and, and probably in some way it like let me reconnect with like my dad or my childhood or whatever. All these stories are all, just like me falling down the rabbit hole of my own curiosity and just by pure happenstance, I swear to God, people also enjoy them. And so if somebody's like, 
uh, I don't get a lot of compliments, but when I do, one of them I get a lot of is like, you have a good eye for stories. Right. And like, um, that's honestly purely just like the things that I like. And yeah. I'm incredibly happy that like, or sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes I'm like, I found this VHS cassette of play in the 1994 us national team. I'm going to write 2000 words on it. And then it does zero subscribers and is a mess. <laughs> whatever. So it's not, they can't all be whatever water fountain pieces, you know, but no, it's to me, it's selfish, man. And I'm just like, I feel really lucky that other people want to like be along for the sort of journey of discovery of those pieces, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is an interesting process. I mean, you talk about it and tweet about it. Like you have like a notebook that you carry around with you. And when you think of an idea, you jot it down. How often are you going into that notebook? Like there, there it is um, right there. Like how, yeah. Uh, I, I, not as much as I should. I, I don't because it is a reminder sometimes of my own lack of productivity. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you read it and you're like, fuck, I, excuse me. You're like, whatever. I have like, 80 story ideas here that I think would kill and I haven't done any of them or it's like here's four that I started and stopped you know what I mean like so but it's like it's great rainy day stuff you know what I mean like if you you know I mean I'm sure you too have like jot down story ideas and it's like in a really dark moment you can at least open the and just say you know what just start even if you like if you have writer's block you'd be like just start reporting this just like do a couple interviews something like that so there's, there's a lot of those in here. So, and there are some truly stupid stories also. Yeah. Here. Well, everyone has to have a list of like absolutely absurd stories. What's your, ideas. what's like the, uh, I guess it's weird to say this. Maybe like other writers aren't listening though. Like what's the dumbest story that you've always wanted to write and haven't written yet? Oh my gosh. I feel like you told me a couple. I just can't remember. Them. I have you know, so many like, bad story ideas, Pablo. I, my list of bad story ideas is definitely longer than my list of good story ideas. I mean, the things that interest me, unfortunately, are not nearly as interesting as the things that interest you. I mean, like Sam and I have oh, talked wait, about on, the Red Bulls, the Red Bulls, DC playoff oral history. That was one of your ideas. That was one that of I my just, ideas. I mean, I just those moments the football from you and ran away with it. So. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes I let I let you run away with it. Yeah, um, yeah. it it's better for everyone. Um to know when a, when a story is better suited for someone else than it is for you. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, the problem is that I get stuck in these ideas that, um, you know, usually are about stupid things like MLS rules. And then I'm like, oh, like we're going to, you know, Sam and I have talked about reporting out a piece on the product strategy committee forever and ever and ever and ever. And yeah. that hasn't happened yet. It's been like, it's been on my list of story ideas for two or three years. And like, is that a, is that an important story for somebody to tell at some point about the league? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, yeah. Um, and then, you know, what happens is the new news continues to break and it keeps pulling you away. And, you know, these different signings happen, you get pulled into these different stories or world cup qualifying takes over your life. And, you just keep pushing it back until you see a glimmer of a, of a month when you can report something out. I mean, even, you know, we, we broke the the news story about Deloitte Hansen um, that, you know, eventually ended in him selling Real Salt Lake. I mean, that had been on our list of story ideas and, and in the process of things that we were reporting out for over a year before it all of a sudden, like we, we got an opening and we had, you know, Andy Williams step up and talk and, and, all of a sudden the story happened in like two days. And I think that happens a lot in, in my process of. Well, dude, it could be tough too, especially for, I feel like a writer like you, where you have these long-term 
pieces you want to write and what you're talking about, you're like, finally you get a window or a break. And like half the time you're like, cool, I can exhale and like <laughs> yeah. play with my children. Like, you know, you know, it's like the first thing that comes to mind is like, finally the projects project or uh, product strategy committee piece, you know, it's like, yeah, the, um, it can be rough, you know, there's I gotta mean, be know, something sick in your head. If you get a, if you get a couple of days rest and you're like, you know what? It's product strategy committee time. <laughs> I, I honestly, with the Willie piece, it's like, I cannot, it sounds ridiculous, maybe to the listener or viewer or whatever, but like, I cannot tell you how emotionally taxing that whole writing and reporting process was on me and Matt both. Um, I feel a little bad for Matt, you know, because Matt obviously left the outlet. And when people talk about this piece now, it's like, I don't hear his name enough. And it was like his life, like it was mine for months, you know what I mean? And like, um, so I just want to give some love to to Matt, who's like one of my favorite writers and people, um, obviously. But what I was saying is when that piece finally published, it's just like you have this like weight off where you're like almost incapable of doing anything for a week or two because it's such a catharsis, you know, and I'm still kind of in that. Honestly, it's like haven't had the most productive month, you know, on the site, which I'm hopefully will obviously change next month. But like. It really is because like you publish something that big and ambitious and then you're just like, I need a, I just need to breathe for one second, you know, yeah. like, but that never happens because people always come to you with stuff. Well, that's and, like, the thing. People, There's always the next story, but sometimes it, it is finding that balance between giving yourself a chance also to ha enjoy the story because you don't enjoy it during the reporting process or the writing process, you know, and I mean, you do, but you don't, it's, it's, you're enjoying it, but it's also weighing on you. And then when it comes out, it's like this moment to be like done with it and then enjoy finally getting to the finish line. And it's like, okay, when you, once you move to the next story, you've, you've ended that finish line feeling. And that's really hard to get to. I imagine, you know, I feel like you need like a longer window after a story you've reported as long as you did that one. It's like, this was kind of like writing a book in a way for, um, yeah. for both you and Matt. Um, and I wonder, I mean, just is something I've wondered, um, Pablo, about like everyone knows that you you work on cars, you worked on cars for a really long time. Do you think there's like a similarity in the mindset of like taking things apart, putting them back together, fixing things in kind of how you approach story ideas of like, because like even just then when you were describing the train, like you went into the designer and all the different things he designed, you didn't just have that knowledge. Like you, you, cha you went down that rabbit hole at some point as you found the interest in that train, I'm sure. I got a hold of the museum and they let me walk through the inside of the train, which was like, right. I'd look at these things when I was a kid. I was like, just geeking out. Right. And, or like, yeah. you know, when we think about the water fountain story, it's like the normal person would have gone and done the oral <laughs> history of the water fountain story. And that's the normal way to do it, to talk to the players that were involved and boom, the piece is done and you move on. They wouldn't have spoken to a gender studies expert. Right, saying? exactly. Like, you go and you speak found to the water fountain and drove it to the Hall of Fame and, <laughs> and tell us. Yeah, but to me, it's like that's like you taking apart every inch of the story, like going to the photographer, writing about what that photographer's other work looked like and was about and, and allowing that interview to open up a whole new angle to the story that made it different and special. And I just feel like I, I have to think there's like there's something in kind of the way your brain works that like it worked well as a mechanic where you had all, I mean, and, and still like you're doing another project where you're literally taking a, a car apart and putting it back together again. And, you know, it just makes me think of the way you, I know your process is as a writer as well. I think if there's overlap there, it's probably unintentional because frequently what I've thought is, um, you know, I have no background in writing. My, 
my parents, thankfully, are both great writers. And, you know, my I'd be lying if I didn't say that, you know, when I first started writing, like, whatever, 10 years ago, my dad edited a lot of my stuff and gave me a lot of pointers. Um, but, like, writing for me, I mean, if there's if I've ever done anything good, if there's a piece out there that people enjoy, it was just, like, excruciating. <laughs> like, it, it wasn't, like... It has never come naturally to me. And like, I I deal with this, like we talked about this privately, like I have full on imposter syndrome when it comes to writing. Any success I have, anything like that, it's just like, you think you're supposed to go to journalism school. You're thinking, you're, I never even went to college, dude. I barely graduated high school. So it's like, um, the only degree I have is from Lincoln Technical Institute, which I don't think an automotive repairs. I don't think, you know, <laughs> a for-profit institution. Um, so no, I mean I think the the two jobs are vastly vastly different in a lot of ways. I do think obviously working on cars for 20 years probably has done things to my brain that like you are right, like maybe the circuitry is just sort of aligned in a way where it makes the researching and reporting easier, you know, or like I I get more obsessed. So you're probably onto something. I just think in my brain like working on cars is something that I have done for a long time. I will openly just say without like a hint of, you know, like shame. I'm a very good mechanic. I'm like the best person I know at doing it. Um, it's not just not something I'd ever say about my writing. So the two things are just completely different, you know? Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you're right. All of our experiences have some cumulative effect on our brain that affects everything else. So, you know, so among the the many crazy and awesome different stories you've done with the athletic, is there a favorite for you? Like, like, is We Willie the favorite, or there, is there another piece that really stands out to you that you just loved doing or loved the how it turned out? Uh, the George Best piece, I just have a real attachment to the We Will. All right, so the We Willie piece is uh, probably like the most ambitious, interesting thing I've done the water fountain piece is like my favorite thing I've done just because it was like, it just turned, like you said, it turned into this whole thing, but then there's, and like, I'm sure you um, know this too. There are all these like tiny stories that you do that you have attachments to that aren't like even ambitious or epic in any way, you know, um, maybe just like revealing that Mesut Ozil never wanted to come to DC United. He wanted to open a coffee shop. Well, the, like the, the, the story you did on Rory, um, who worked great. with, that was great. worked yeah. with Wayne Rooney. That was a fantastic story. You know, yeah, you have yeah. those little victories as well that, you know, that, by the way, when I say little victories, like I know as a reporter, like that story comes about out of a relationship that is a real relationship that you build sure. over years and years and years of being, just a nice person and a friendly person. And then eventually you're like, Oh, this is a good story. And, and you I mean, even, but even Rooney himself, I mean, I think he gave me three one-on-ones in two years. He didn't do that with anybody else. Yeah. So I think you're right. I mean, definitely like it, it, it helps to have interpersonal skills. I was just telling a story by the way, the other day about Wayne Rooney that I was standing in the hallways of RFK in that media room by the locker room, which I'm sure you spent in, in too much time, amount of time. And yeah. yeah, we, we now have mesothelioma because of it. So, <laughs> Uh, I was standing there and I was just leaning against the wall and I was wearing uh, some slip on vans that have like uh, characters from peanuts on them. I mean, whatever, say what you will about my fashion choices. So Rooney comes walking down the hallway wearing the, uh, the very famous like Balenciaga shoes that look like socks or whatever is the line in the rap song. I'm really sounding horrible now, but <laughs> he's walks out to me and he just, 
looks down at my shoes and then looks up at me and just go, it shakes his head and just goes, I can't do British accent, but just goes, what are those? <laughs> and then he just laughs. <laughs> so, I thought yeah. he was going to buy them off you. Yeah, exactly. Any price, you know, mate. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. So it's, you are right. Um, I think both of us might, you know, maybe we've, I don't want to use the word exploited, but like used to our advantage, like having just being relatable, normal people with personal skills, which is, uh, there aren't a lot of soccer writers who have personal skills. (laughs) (laughs) Occasionally you find ways to connect. Yeah. No, that's, that's, I mean, we all like, I think, you know, hearing you talk about like an an interaction with Wayne Rooney, I mean, you have that, that to me also, by the way, stands out as like the weirdest part of our job. For sure. I am not over the fact that like, you know, I had normal person interactions with someone like Kaka or like for me. And when I was in Chicago and Schweinsteiger was there, every time I used to come to training, Schweinsteiger is like, by the way, a, a huge jokester. And I didn't know this about him. If you go back into like his early days at Bayern Munich, he was like a winger. He used to paint all of his fingernails black. He was like a big party animal. Yeah. Like totally different vibe than what Whoa. late career Schweinsteiger gives you. Um, but he so he was a practical joker and he would find these little things that just became you know his connection to that individual on the team and for some reason for me every time i was at training he just decided he wanted to test like my touch and so every at the end of every training session when he would come off if i was there he would hit a a ball at me that was like in between ankle and knee height right like that <laughs> awkward place where you like really have to have a good touch or it's going to go badly And, you know, just to see how my touch would be that day. And, you know, for the most part, I did well enough, but he enjoyed it enough that every time it would happen. So I came to a session. I started wearing, by the way, I started wearing sneakers to sessions because like, yeah, I couldn't do it in dress shoes anymore. And I knew he was going to do it every time I was there. But at one point, he he, he had an American football and he wanted to throw it. So he, he this time he ran over the American football. He's like, hey, do you know how to throw one of these? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, hey, let's let's throw it. I'm like, okay, this is a really bizarre moment of my life to be throwing a football at Schweinsteiger. Yeah. And towards like, you know, we must have been throwing the football for like three or four minutes. And at the end of it, I throw the ball and it's a bad throw. You know, he's backed up a good amount. There's a ton of wind at the fires practice field, which is surrounded by like a, a mud mountain and it becomes a wind tunnel Yeah, and the ball gets knocked down. And any American who's ever thrown a, a football in a game of catch knows if the ball's coming towards your feet, you don't reach down to try to catch it because it's going to hit the ground and it's going to bounce up awkwardly and it's going to jam your finger. But Schweinsteiger doesn't know this because it's the first time he's ever thrown a football back and forth. Oh and so God. I throw this ball and it's going low and I'm like, no, don't reach for it. Like you're a soccer player. Like trust your yeah. instincts. Just trap it with your foot. He reaches down and it bounces up and it jams his finger like badly. And he's running towards me, like holding his finger clearly in pain. And he's like, you know, he's giving me the signal. We're done. And I'm like, yeah, I know we're done. And he like goes into the training room and I see him like this is like the end of a season. So I see like a whole off season comes and goes and I, I go out to like the Chicago Fire opening media session for the next season. And Schweinsteiger's there and he sees me and he walks up to me and he's like, hey, and I'm like, hey, hey, Basti, what's up? And he's like, remember, remember when you were throwing the ball to me and it hurt my finger? And I said, yeah, he goes, yeah, it still hurts. My finger's not normal. Um and so I kind of have it's kind of stuck with me that I have left a permanent mark on Bastian Schweinsteiger and that his finger will never feel quite right after whatever happened. Maybe he dislocated. I don't know. Anyways, 
that whole story was just a bizarre way of me talking about throwing a football with Bastian Schweinsteiger. So we'll go back to talking about Major League Soccer in this next segment and uh, a little bit about DC United because at this midseason point, you know, most teams have played 17 games. We're at the halfway point. DC United, last place in the East, Pablo. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. I'm here with Pablo Maurer. And, you know, both of us are DC guys, Pablo we're at the halfway point of the MLS season. And, you know, there are some interesting stories out there. LAFC obviously being top of the West and signing, you know, Bale and Chiellini on non-DP deals. RSL's in second place in the West. Everyone picked them to be essentially last place. Montreal's in first place in the East. The Red Bulls, a year after I picked them to be good, are good. I'm still claiming that as an accurate <laughs> prediction. But because we're both DC guys, I feel like we have to talk about DC United uh, last place in the East. And I wonder just from your perspective, like they have two DP spots open. Like, does this get better anytime soon? Like what, what's happening with DC United? It, it can only get better. I don't That's think it's going to get better this year is the thing. I mean, you can, the, the sort of number of times in MLS history that a team has been able to turn it around within a month or two, or, you know, it's happened, but, um, you know, I think DC's roster might need a more comprehensive overhaul. Um, you do have some pieces there, obviously, that are um, productive. And, you know, uh, someone like Julian Gressel comes to mind. You know what I mean? I'm already running out of players that I'm like, you know, they should keep these guys, you know. Um, you know, a longtime player like Bill Hamid, obviously, Steve Birnbaum. I mean, you have, you have guys who are consistent, who aren't part of the problem. 
but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little shocked. You know, I, I honestly thought when they canned Losada the game of the year, um, I thought you might see a little them go on a little bit of a run, as is normally the case when you know teams have an interim coach, especially one they're familiar with. And you know, we all heard about you know what was said supposedly at least about Losada's training methods and the him losing the locker room, whatever. Um, but it's only gone downhill since then. You know what I mean? Um, injuries haven't done them any favors. You look at a player like Andy Nahar, who's like a revelation for them last year, who was injured and now just doesn't really look like himself, had one of the all-time funniest misses in MLS history last week. Um, should have put it on the will be right back thread, but I retired that because I just realized I was just being mean to professional athletes about <laughs> shit that I could never do. You know what I mean? Um but yeah, it's it's troubling for sure. I mean, what have what have you made of them? No, I mean, it, it, I think yeah, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head in that there's there are points when when teams come to uh, rosters come to to a place where they need to be blown up a little bit. And I think the good news for DC United is they have two DP spots open, and in Major League Soccer, if you hit on DPS, it can transform your team. But you know, the question will be what what is the ambition with those spots? Where are they looking? Can they get the international spots? The international scouting right to sign those DPS and 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 have them be effective. I, I think it's always interesting to me. I feel like when MLS is looking to fix a club to help provide a boost in a market, they they deliver the All Star game. It happened in Chicago a few years ago. They had the All Star game at Soldier Field. They were trying to create some energy. They, they got this thing right after they missed out on the World Cup. It feels like yeah. just the world's worst consolation prize. You know it is I mean? not. Like, the, it is not definitely not the World Cup coming. <laughs> But I, it, to me, that's just a signal that, you know, MLS recognizes that there's a market in need of, of a boost. And I think that's where DC United is right now. Um, it's not what it, you know, what makes it sad is that it was the best in MLS when I was young and growing up in the market and going to games at, at RFK Stadium and watching, you know, Echeverria Moreno and Raul Diaz Arce and the Barra Bravo was the first real atmosphere in Major League Soccer. And the club has this great history and they've never really capitalized on that history recently. They've never embraced it. They've never tried to make it a real part of who they are other than Ben Olsen being the, the coach for as long as he was, but like that only went so far. And so I just wonder kind and they of, they didn't do that to like, let's be real. They did honor that because it came cheap and because he was like, you know, they were in a, tra a transitional state. It wasn't like, we're keeping him around because he's the connection to the glory years, you know, but that's the only, that's what he was. And, and, and so I wonder if that's a part of kind of the rebirth or rebuild that, that needs to be a part of the rebirth or rebuild is trying to find a way to embrace that history a bit more. And even at the all-star game announcement, I know they had some, I think like Moreno was involved in it. Ben Olsen yeah. was there, um, you know, so maybe, maybe that's the direction they go. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher in MLS to, to be, you know, consistently competitive without kind of shoving all in on, on a direction and a path. And it gets harder for teams, um, who are trying to patchwork things. And I feel like that's where DC United has been for a little bit now where, you know, they have these couple core members of the team, but they've been kind of piecing the, the other parts around it. Yeah based on each year. And they're not the only team that's done that. Uh, you know, I think even if you look at some of the successful teams like Colorado, you can have one or two years of great success doing that. And then usually you have to flip and rebuild. And I think the Rapids are trying to build something a little bit more consistent through the domestic market. But like 
DC United needs to find what their path is going to be. So let me. So two things. The first one is to your first point about how maybe their history could be part of them building forward. Sure. I mean, I think I've I've frequently even said I think it's like genuine, like almost financial malpractice to not pump up the fact that you you were at one point the most successful club in MLS history that you had this deep deep connection to Latinos in DC, all these things, right? But I, I would like, um, speak of DC, like Marine One is over my house right now, if you hear that. So there's three <laughs> helicopters, so I know what it is. Um, uh, the other thing though is like, look, that was a moment in time. And um, all you can do is look at the LA Galaxy, who were similarly, they had this stretch of incredible success in the mid-aughts and even in early MLS history to a certain time, but nobody really perceives them as a team that is like, a you know, yes, they're a legacy team, but it's not the staid, uh, you know, old thing. And I, I think there comes a point, man, where you and I, look, we talk about going to RFK, you talk about going, you know, with your dad or other people. And, uh, you know, the first thing I think of genuinely is like the tailgate does not exist anymore. I think, there is honestly a story to be done about how Lot 8, that whole scene, was 100% unique in MLS. And when it disappeared, these DC United games, I remember moving to DC in 2005, man, and the you know I knew, obviously, MLS, and I was a soccer fan, but you would hear people in bars being like, it's like a party, we gotta go. It's like party inside the game. They jump around and dance and stuff, and like you show up two hours before and you just eat free food and drink and like, that element doesn't exist anymore. Like the other thing I'll say is to your point about like almost like how a team like DC needs to just pick a lane and pursue it and try and build an identity. I think about the Philadelphia union, man, like every time I cover a game in Philly, I'm like, you know, they don't have the nicest stadium. It's, it's a great stadium, but it's, you know, it's like maybe MLS 1.5, right. As one of the earlier soccer specific stadiums and stuff, they have like a great, they have a great product. Like the presentation of the game is great. The fans are great. They've consistently put for the most part a quality product on the field. They have an ethos and an identity. And it, I'm sorry, man, but it was born out of not wanting to spend a lot of money. Right. They became a team that's going to have these Academy kids that play. They have a coach like Jim who's like bought into the ethos, their coach, their players are all likable. Um, DC United could easily be the Philadelphia Union. If they don't want to be the LA Galaxy, that's fine. But like they could have been the, they could even be the Portland Timbers, who are just like a, a sensation, like a local thing in their own market, right? Like, but they haven't been anything. Like instead yeah. they've just they continue to tread water, right? And like, yeah, look, I know there are well-meaning people in the front office there. I've often said it's not a same. People want to like make it as simple as like, oh, it's about ownership or it's about X, Y, and Z thing. It's just, I think, about like needing a little more ambition and investment, and like you know, getting the people who are in positions of power there to to do those things, you know. But for yeah. now, it's like I'd be honest with you, man. Like the in game, if you go to a game at Audi Field, it's a little depressing. You know what I mean? Um, it's like the fact that the stadium exists is a miracle, but like the product that's on the field, the attitude of the fans, all this sort of stuff. And if you look around the stadium, you wouldn't know that they won any MLS Cups. 
So, right. you know. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's 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 lacking the ambition, but I think also the vision a little bit of, again, I mean, Philadelphia was nothing for a long time until they, they chose the route that they did. They had an owner who said, I'm going to invest money, but it's only going to be in the academy. And that created a direction for them. And it's led to success. Yeah. I, obviously, I think Ernst Tanner is one of the better GMs in the league and has done a really good job there as well. So credit to him and to Jim Curtin. Um, and, you know, a nod to Ernie Stewart, who was part of the build of this, of what we see now. But, you know, I, I do think that it comes down to vision and a decision to be made on on which direction you want to go. I, I would also say, like, I am, like, really bad at spending money on myself on, like, clothes or things. Like, but, but, you know, we talked about this earlier. We all have these connections or to memories, and that leads you down lanes for stories or whatever it might be. Um, I Like, the one thing I, I have almost – I didn't buy – I actually didn't – pull the trigger which goes to show but like there's like a vintage 1996 dc united jersey i found for sale that i used to have as a kid you know that it's one of the the most iconic jerseys in the history of this league yep. the three stripes across the chest like to me if dc united like and the galaxy did this you know the galaxy put together throwback jerseys that sold out right away when they when they brought them out like if dc united came out in the the black kits and the white kits with the red shorts that they wore in those early days like that would that would yeah. jumpstart something, in my opinion. And like, those like are the little license things. to print money. Yeah, like you've been. Yeah. And I've even said, I incidentally, I own the Washington Dips trademark. I just like the NISL slept on it. I just <laughs> I picked it up off a scrap heap for nothing. Pablo. But yeah, I know. I so I'm not pitching myself on this. But like, <laughs> if they did, if they did dips throwback here, think about it. I'm serious. You know what I mean? Like. Those, there's so much for a bargain these. price. You would be willing to help them do dips throwback. We're talking here. high <laughs> six figures, low seven <laughs> figures. You know what I mean? Like, I will retire on this. No, I'm serious. I might let them do it for free. I don't. I don't. It's just like I think it's well. To be clear, not for free. But you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what no, I mean. It, I think I think it's, it, there are they, there are ways to get people monetizing excited. their history. I think you know. Yeah, um, there are ways to get people excited. You know, and, though, here, Paul. Do you, I mean, is this maybe a thing though, where like you and I are just crusty old DC people, and like definitely. that history is worth a lot to us? But if you're just like some staffer who moved here three months ago, who knows MLS because of like you know LAFC or something like that, you know, like are you? Yeah. You need, both, you probably not. You need you, know? you need both, but also the reasons those jerseys were iconic is because they look good. Yeah. Like, and that's what soccer is about now. It's streetwear, right? Like if you buy an old jersey, like those old school galaxy jerseys that they redid, those look cool if you just wear them with some shorts or jeans yep. and go out to a bar. Yeah. Like that DC United jersey, the both the black and the white one, in my opinion, are cool enough to just wear. And like, so yes, you're pulling in the old fans, but you're also giving people around dc something cool to wear they were designed by the guy who designed the jordan one um you know what i mean i wrote about this who recently died uh rest in peace but like they are it's iconic like highly wearable stuff unlike a lot of the mls jerseys over the you know the past 10 years or so which are just atrocious like that one is i honestly would use the word timeless it's yeah i mean it's hilarious that it's a it is i would for me it's the best jersey in mls history and I would say that universally, almost among pundits, fans, whatever, it's a top five kit, top ten, if I'm being generous. And it's a black shirt with three white stripes across it. It's like, it's one of those things where the clean thing that I mock all the time actually worked. You know what I mean? Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe they should bring it back. I don't know. I don't I mean, think it's gonna 
you know, necessarily solve institutional rot, but we'll see what happens. You know? no, but if you, if you pair that with a little bit more vision, if you pair that with um, like, like MLS teams are always reaching with rebrands and sometimes you don't need a rebrand. You just need to embrace what your brand was. I think, you know, and, and who you, who you are and allow that to refresh the, the, the club. And I think this would be a good example of that. Um, but to your point about being crusty old DC fans, I mean, it's one of my favorite things that anyone has ever said to me to like really put me in my place or to like, <laughs> like accurately sum me up very quickly. I was in the basement of RFK stadium in the days before Audi field debuted. And at the time the club was going back and forth with the fan groups and they actually ended up not being at that game. And it was a real shame. And that's yeah. what I wrote my column about. And I, and I was going, uh, I was talking to Ben Olsen in his office and I've known Ben a long time. I've known Ben since he was a player and and he's known me a long time. And I'm like talking to him about, you know, how important I think they are to the identity of DC United. And if you're going to pull all these new fans into Audi Field, don't you want them to see that atmosphere? And and Ben kind of like does the thing where he leans back in his chair and he goes, I know, Paul, I know you're a sentimental guy. You're the <laughs> sentimental type. <laughs> and I was just like. I just kind of closed my notebook. I was like, yeah, we're done here. And you just nailed it. You know, it's what it was. It was sentimentality that I had towards the club and my history and an idea of, of what DC United was in that market. But I think, you know, I think that um, MLS would do well to remember kind of those moments in, in grabbing that that can grab new fans the same way it grabbed fans when they first came around. And that's, and, you know, that's what these expansion teams are doing in all these markets. They're finding ways to make you fall in love with the team, and then they can ride that wave. These legacy teams, it's a lot harder to do that, to be new and exciting. But some, but what could be, for DC United specifically, new and exciting is that, oh, this is not just a new and exciting team. This is one of the more storied franchises in the league's history. Super successful. Let's teach you about that. Here's here's a question. I'm not, I, I know this is like hour six of the Today Show or something at this point, but like, um, what do you make of the fact that Paul Ariola and Lucho Costa both left DC United and are having, uh, you know, Paul is a legitimate, probably MVP candidate at least, right? Um, Lucho is, you know, it took him a year or so, but I would say thriving in Cincinnati and he's still one of the most exciting playmakers in the league. What, what, and they're, they're just like, they're, I could make you a list of players that have left DC United and thrived elsewhere. I'm curious what you make of that. This year in particular, you know, um, Paul, who many people, the knock on him at DC United was, yeah, but he can't score, right? Yeah, but he can't finish, whatever. Now all of a sudden it's like, has found the barn door, you know? Um, I don't know. What do you make of that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult. Every situation kind of varies, but I do think that there is something to be said for, um, you know, needing to get out of somewhere where you've where you're feeling dragged down. And, and I think sometimes when you're the face of a team that's struggling, then you become the target a little bit too. And then when you can remove yourself from that and give yourself kind of a new life, a new lease on life, it, it allows you to thrive a bit more as a player. But, you know, I mean, DC United selling Acosta, I think that was that. Ha I mean, did he yeah. go on a free? Yeah, he left. No. he left, right. You know, they, that was a situation that was just mishandled. You know, I go back to the PSG situation. Um, and Ariola, look, I think you have to accept that trade. $2 million in GAM 
gives you an opportunity to to go use it and and put together like, a good roster. Wanted to leave undoubtedly. You know what I mean? Like, but yeah, yeah, but it hurts when you watch them thrive somewhere else. I mean, it's the same thing as the fire letting Georgi Mihaljevic go. Like, I don't think Georgi Mihaljevic would be what he is right now in Montreal if he was still in Chicago. Like, I think he, the player needed the move as much as the team also needed to get to let him move on. And I think that I, might I mean, be the I would, case I would imagine if you're an MLS GM, you have the same attitude of situations like this as I do about all of my ex-girlfriends, which is I just want them to be miserable and never get over me <laughs> and, spend, and never be able to recapture that magic. Unfortunately, just at DC United's a lot like me probably as a boyfriend, all my ex-girlfriends seem to go on to do better things that are places, be much happier and score against me almost is what I would say, you know? So, right. Yeah. I'm not yeah. an incel. I just want to clear that up. I was just making a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this, Pablo, you know, whether whether Sam's back next week or someone else, you know, it's going to be difficult to replace you. You know why? Because you stepped into this show and you you carried forward what we love to do, which is pretend that this is a soccer podcast and and have ideas of soccer things we might talk about. What about and Brian? Then, like, did you get a hold of Brian Strauss? Not talk about them at all. Distress? I did. He refused I did to get do a, that. He's not interested in in doing uh, the video version of this podcast or the the audio. I mean, version. we wouldn't have it any other way. That's no. That's very Straussian. As he but said to me, I'm Straussian. always happy to catch up with you offline. So, yeah. um, <laughs> <It's great. laughs> um, but I appreciate you coming on to Allocation Disorder and talking about all things that are not soccer. Mentioning Product Strategy Committee multiple times. <laughs> Um, which checked off the boxes of discussing things that no one cares about other than the listeners of this show. Um, we'll be back next week. I don't know whether Sam will be back from vacation yet. I have not checked in with Sam, as I promised him I wouldn't do. Um, but I'm sure maybe if he comes back next week, he'll be happier and yet still bring the same angry energy to allocation disorder as he does every week. Thank you guys for listening. I'm Paul. He's Pablo. This has been Allocation Disorder. Allocation Disorder.